I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail I'm standing outside Sims Metal, that's the, the big scrap metal yard that was on fire a couple of weeks ago and that fire burned for hours and hours and hours. Um, I'm here because we were hoping to be able to go in and talk to somebody and have a little look around but we but nobody's replied to our calls and we couldn't uh, get any other scrap metal yard to talk to us either. So I want to find out what goes in and what comes out of these scrap metal yards and why it has actually become a much more complicated with the new technology that's around. So I'll be talking to someone from the industry, Karina Kirk, I'll also be talking to fire investigator Pete Gallagher about what it's like to go in and investigate the fires at these sites and why it can be so dangerous. While I was there, I saw a small explosion. It was over in seconds, and I'll talk more about that later. But just a reminder of what happened here on May 30th. Well, emergency services say a scrap metal fire in South Auckland that's been burning for around 30 hours. Trains were halted and civil defence urged thousands of people downwind of the industrial park in Favona to stay indoors because of the smoke. There's another emergency alert. Time to get out, I think. It's a smoke plume that's of concern, which is drifting into our communities. It is the ninth fire at the yard. Flashback to March 2018 as cars, bikes, scaffolding, roofing iron exploded into life. These are heavy industrial sites, so there's a lot of very big machinery, a lot of heavy equipment, and the way in which the piles of scrap are arranged um, means that after the fire, there is a, a, a huge risk of some of the stuff sort of slipping and sliding and collapsing down. That's Pete Gallagher, a manager of fire investigation and risk reduction at Fire and Emergency. He's talking about what it's like to go in after a big fire like this. If you can imagine, it's a jumble of sticks that have been placed on the ground and we're now trying to get in underneath and, and pull out some of those sticks to see exactly what's caused the fire to start. So like the, the pickup sticks that we played with as children, there's always the possibility that everything could come collapsing down on top of you. So they are really uh, quite hazardous from an investigator's point of view. So is it just like pile upon pile upon pile of metal? Yeah, I guess in simple terms, that's, that's exactly what it is. Although, you know, the scrap metal industry is is maturing as the world markets require cleaner scrap. Uh, for re-smelting so that there's less use of the, the Earth's natural resources. Um, and so now there's a greater emphasis on separating out metals when they arrive. So the, the scrap metal agent will go through and identify what's high-quality aluminium, what's low-quality aluminium. Same with steel, the non-ferrous metals, the coppers, the zincs, uh, those sorts of things are all separated out because they all have different uh, processes to go through. But they are essentially a big, heavy pile of tangled metal. What precautions are you taking yeah, so it's a case of having your, your head on a swivel, really checking out what's happening in front and behind you at the same time. 
and checking for those overhead hazards all the time, things that may have moved, listening for creaks and groans, and of course you're doing all that through a respirator. So um, it's a challenging environment to work in. How far in do you get? How close are you getting in there? Look, it depends very much on the incident. Um, In some cases, the operators can... um, pinpoint for us whereabouts the fire has started, where they first saw it, and that that helps limit our time exposure and how long we have to be in there because we know where to start looking. But in in other cases, these investigations can run for two to three days of, of sifting through the material. You know, every item has to be pulled out and and just pulling it out means using machinery or using forklifts or, or other lighter lighter lifting machinery to move things about. And you're picking up the bits of metal and, and having a look at it and seeing whether that could have been involved in actually causing it, causing the fire. Well, uh, yeah, so the way in which metal behaves in fire means that um, as it's heated, it leaves marks on the, on the metal. And so even after extinguishment, um, we can often trace back those marks and they they point us in the direction of where the fire started. Um, but being able to see them means pulling those piles apart and that's why it takes so long to, uh, to figure out exactly what's happened. Can you say generally what causes these fires? There are a number of causes of fires and scrap metal piles in New Zealand and in, in wreckers' yards as well. So you've got grinding and cutting equipment Um, gas welding type equipment so there's open flames um, in use but you've also got big heavy machinery that just crushes and uh, cuts the steel and um, as those cutting bars uh, work their way through the steel they generate a lot of heat as well so you can have um, just the friction of that these these things can get red hot um, just as they crunch the metal up and then of course on top of that you've got items which are not supposed to be in the metal pile that end up there. Um, and this is where we have a problem with people um, incorrectly disposing of materials. And that's a big risk to the industry as well because it puts their people at risk. We're going to bring in Corina Kirk in a moment. She's on the board of the Association of Metal Recyclers and she has a family-owned business in Christchurch. But back at Sims Metal, I've managed to get a better view of the yard. I can see a few metres away a conveyor belt carrying pieces of metal and pouring them into a pile. Another truck has just come along with some, uh, with a couple of cars on it. There's a, a crane that's just lifted up a big shipping container over on one side. There's another, at least two other cranes, no, three other cranes operating next to piles of of metal and uh, right in front of me is a huge machine and it is several stories high. But just listen to this. What I see is a small explosion, a ball of fire and a puff of smoke and it's over in seconds. In a written explanation, Sim says the incident was, in its words, 
the result of a concealed pressure vessel, such as a gas bottle, entering the shredding process and generating an air blast. It goes on to say that while these events are undesirable and can generate flame, smoke and sound pressure, its shredding mill systems and processes are designed to safely and effectively manage these incidents. In the yard, I see the conveyor belt stop briefly. Things go quiet and then start up again as if nothing's happened. Karina says explosions like this are not typical, but some explosive materials do get past the rigorous checking processes. Things that are, you know, hazards to us, obviously lithium-ion batteries, but, you know, fuels and oils, um, things that we call sealed units or sealed cylinders, so anything that doesn't have a clear opening because we don't know what's in it. Um, and we need to establish what is in it. Um, so gas bottles would be an obvious one there. So people might have a, an old barbecue LPG gas cylinder and it's it's good good steel and it, it needs to be recycled, but unless that cylinder has been degassed and had the valve removed, it's not something that we will um, accept into our facilities because it presents a risk otherwise. Do you often find stuff that's you know, either accidentally or deliberately hidden in, in something else? Well, unfortunately, I'd like to be able to say no, but, um, you know, when we're dealing with the general public, we're dealing with a wide, wide range of people. We typically find most people are keen to do the right thing, but things like gas bottles um, or lith- even lithium-ion batteries nowadays, anything that you have to effectively pay to to get rid of, you know, people will try and sneak those things in if they if they think they can. Not everybody. I think it's a very small percentage, but like anything, you're always going to get a few who just try and sort of shortcut around the rules. What do they do? How do they try and sneak this stuff in? Well, they might put like a gas bottle inside something else. But again, we're performing those checks in order to find those. Um, so we, the, we're talking about the general public here. It's a little bit easier for us to keep on top of that because, like I say, we he- typically hand unload those customers. Commercial customers, um, a little bit different, but again, we're dealing with commercial people. We've all got higher levels of obligation and responsibilities, so commercial customers know what is and isn't acceptable um, and will have done a lot of pre-screening and stuff of their own accord because at the end of the day, if anything goes wrong, they're just as responsible. But how do you know that something at the bottom of a heap that may have caused a fire or caused some sort of problem has been brought in by a certain person? That can be hard to determine, um, but a lot of us, a lot of our larger yards um, have a lot of CCTV footage, um, and we also typically take photographs on the waybridge of the loads that are coming in, Um, so we can usually trace things back to some extent. But let's find out more about those lithium batteries because they are everywhere. We all know about electric vehicles and we certainly know about our cell phones, um, but we perhaps don't consider the fact that they might be in a watch, a smart watch, or um, you know, your cordless drill that you use at home, or some kids' toys. Basically anything that's rechargeable is likely to have a lithium-ion battery in it. So people sometimes don't think and they can perhaps throw something um, you know, away for recycling with a battery in it without having thought to remove it first. Do you have a way of detecting them at all? 
Uh, it's in like a scan or no? Yeah. This, no, yeah, there's, there's nothing, nothing no. that would no, no. no nothing that would be that, handy though, wouldn't well, it? Well, that's right. Someone needs to invent that, don't they? Yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> that, would, that would make life a lot easier for you. Well, yes and no. I, I I don't know. It might be one thing to invent something that scans for battery, but how you go about actually running, you know, thousands of tons underneath the scanner might be a different thing. I've heard someone describe lithium batteries as ticking bombs. Yeah, yeah, I've heard those descriptions too, and I think we've all seen the um, really sensationalised and quite, um, you know, concerning videos of of lithium-ion battery fires. Those lithium-ion batteries are only an issue if they get compromised, um, and and even then they not necessary that they're going to start a thermal runaway. So a little watch battery, I think that's it's generally going to be encased in the watch. Um, so it should be should be okay. But you know, if it's a larger battery or it's loose and it gets you know dented or crushed, um, then the risks start to increase for that battery to to um, you know begin a thermal runaway and potentially spark a fire. Can you talk to me about what a thermal runaway is? What happens with a lithium-ion battery is if you dent it or it somehow gets damaged, uh, thermal runaway is when the battery starts to overheat um, and it just the heat just continues to increase and increase and increase and eventually it'll reach a point where the battery may explode or um, it just bursts into flames. And once a lithium-ion battery, and I don't think a lot of people realise this, you can't actually put a lithium-ion battery fire out. It has to burn out. Generally, they'll burn one cell at a time, um, and then it'll the fire will move on to the next cell, and it'll continue to burn until all six cells are, are finished, and then it will just extinguish itself. Um, you can all you can do is kind of um, manage that fire with water um, and, and try and keep it dampened down while it's while it's burning. Sometimes, Karina, scrapyards don't have a great image, you know, they're called cowboys and whatnot, and I guess, as you say, that probably da- dates back to the rag and bone mm. um, scrapyards of the of the war era, but especially after the fire like the one in Otahuhu a couple of weeks ago, is it, does that worry you? Well, I think any fires, I mean, it worries me when other industries have large fires, um, you know, we're not the only industry that suffers these things. Um, you know, it, it worries me about, you know, the perception that that's creating. It's unfortunate because, you know, we, we do struggle to, to move away from that and get people, you know. like I mean, we're like any industry. I like to say to people, you probably wouldn't deal with a plumber who wasn't a master plumber nowadays, would you? No. You'd know the risks involved in that. Yet when it comes to metals recycling, people don't seem to apply the same standards. But we have a professional association made up of members who are working hard to meet a wide range of standards. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, when are people going to start see, you know, letting their perceptions hold them back from making the right decisions? What is the worry after that last one is that it burns for so long and it's so toxic yeah, well, this is the thing. I mean, I guess that becomes a bigger, wider question and we have to start asking ourselves, you know, wh- what are these materials that we're producing now? If you look at a car, for instance, it used to be mostly metal. We used to have a, um, you know, a good old solid metal bumper that, you know, you could run over anything with that and you'd, nothing would happen. And now most of your car is made of, you know, smart plastics and stuff and these things are full of, you know, different types of chemicals. So product design has a lot... I guess responsibility is probably the word I look at. You know, we've had such a demand for cheaper, lighter and materials and consumer goods that we've moved away from, 
you know, metals and into an area where we're using materials that are, you know, hazardous when they burn. How much waste do you end up with that can't be reused? <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> Way more than we used to. Let's bring back the good old steel bumpers on cars would be my vote. But, um, yeah, cars used to be, oh, I don't know, I'd have to go back and check my figures, but, you know, off the top of my head, they'd probably be 65 to 70% metals. Um, and now it's, you know, it's falling under 50% in a lot of cases. The good news is we're still able to recover those metals and get them out for recycling because that's we really need to continue doing that. Um, but the reality is the products we're producing now, you know, have moved away especially in the packaging region, from metals. And so that does mean that we're seeing more waste. The good news is, you know, it's much better for us to take a refrigerator and shred it. The way we can recycle the metals, but also the non-metals that do have to go to landfill, the volume-wise, they're hugely reduced. So instead of sending a, a fridge, which we all know the rough size of a fridge nowadays, you can imagine the space that would take up in landfill. Yeah. Um, but once we've shredded it, A, we've recovered the metals for recycling, and B, the remainder of that would probably fit in a shopping bag. This is stuff that has come into the market in the last 10 years. The scrap metal industry has been trying to keep on top of some of this new technology to see what risk it poses, but there hasn't been a large amount of um, research done around what the um, safety precautions need to be for that particular type of material, you know, um, be it uh, lithium, lithium polymer batteries or aluminium oxide cells or whatever it is, the information about end of life, what you do with them when they've reached their end of life is still only emerging. And so um, we're at the bottom of the world and we're struggling to keep up with this technology that's coming in across the border all the time. And how well is is the New Zealand industry, the scrap industry, managing these changes? It's it's difficult to remain um, on top of your game all the time. When you start adding this new technology of of different battery chemistries and um, plastics, which have been fused to steel items or fused to aluminium items, and then having to separate the plastic off, that's a challenge. And a lot of these are proprietary systems, so different manufacturers have a different process of joining things together, and our scrap metal industry has to be able to figure out how to separate that. And often that information isn't shared. You're so close to it, you see what's going on. Clearly, they're not on top of it because there have been so many fires at these scrap metal yards. Sometimes they come across, these scrap yards sort of come across as the, the baddies in the whole equation, but it, obviously a very complicated industry to be in. Yes, it is. It's becoming more and more complex by the day. And I, like you, thought that it was an, quite a simple industry and in that um, things came in, you put them in a pile and, and put, sent them away on a boat and they went away and and became recycled. But actually, when you look into it, there's a whole lot of technicalities that, that uh, exist in that process of making the right decisions about what the material is, where it can go, find out how it can be shipped, whether it can be shipped with other materials or whether it has to go on a separate transport. There's all sorts of things that, um, that they need to be aware of. And then on top of that, um, they're working in a very hazardous environment. From what I saw at the Sims Metal Yard, there's 
big piles of metal all over the place. They must be different types of metals. <laughs> I know it probably looks like it's all over the place to you. It's not quite as slap happy as that sounds. Well, um, actually, somewhere I read somewhere that managing a scrapyard is like organised confusion. They're moving trucks and people and machinery. Yeah, so those piles will all be um, specific, you know, grades of materials, um, and they would have been graded out as they came in from the supplier um, and sorted and checked and stored accordingly. And what happens to it? That's a really hard question to answer. Um, but we'd have a very long talk if I was going to go <laughs> through them all. But essentially we're going to be um, defining whether we call them ferrous, which is all your steel items, or non-ferrous, which are all your other th- non-steel containing metals such as aluminium, brass and copper. Once we've done that, we're, they're going to have contaminants removed. And then they're going to be processed down to size and specification to meet our customer requirements and international standards. And all of the metal is shipped offshore? At the moment it is. So the last steel mill that consumed recycled metals was closed back in 2015. In fact, we consistently um, rank in the top 20 export earners for the country. What figures do you have? I've, I've got something that says prior to COVID, the industry diverted 740,000 tonnes of metals valued at $428 million. Dollars I'd have to go back and check on, but certainly the tonnages that you're reporting there are accurate. It's important to note that that tonnage that you're mentioning there is ferrous mm-hmm. metals, so that's just steel. I think we've got about somewhere between seventy and 80,000 tonne a year of um, non-ferrous metals, so that's things like aluminium and brass and copper. And which countries does it go to? I'll China? Frank, whichever's paying us the most. Was oh, that right? <laughs> but but the, the reality is metals are a sought-after commodity Worldwide, But typically, I think steel's going at the moment to Indonesia, Pakistan and India. Very few ferrous metals actually go to China. Why is that? It's just not the right market for us. It's a long way away. We've got better markets closer to home. How long have you been in the industry, Karina? So I'm uh, with a family business, so I sort of grew up in the industry. Um, and our company is just approaching 35 years old. How much has it, have things changed over that time, given the technology, the, the very rapid development of technology and different materials? Oh, just huge, absolutely huge. Um, I think people would be quite surprised if they actually, like you, took the time to, to visit a metal recycler and have a really good look. I mean, you know, one material handler, which is... I mean, people will look at it and think it's an excavator, but a material handler is designed to lift as opposed to dig. And, you know, just one of those is going to set you back $600,000. So, you know, there's huge capital investment going into these businesses, into metal recyclers. They're not not the sort of rag and bone um, outfits that they perhaps originated as many years ago in the war era. Um, They're highly um, professional and and invested companies that are out there doing this with really defined practices and processes. How do you find people in the industry to deal with? Because you must be having to work pretty closely with them. Uh, We have a really good working relationship with the um, Scrap Metal uh, Association, Um, but not all scrap metal organisations in New Zealand are part of that association. And so there are a few outliers that we haven't really caught up with and and spoken to at depth about risk and fire risk in particular. So some of them aren't very responsive to your approaches? Yeah, look, um, 
I would have to say that I haven't had any uh, of the scrap metal agencies uh, it'd be anything but positive when we've come in to offer them advice. In many cases, um, we've provided them with some assistance after an incident and they've taken that on board straight away and um, endeavoured to, to make some changes to their process. Like what kind of things, Pete? So once they've finished work for the day, somebody remaining around for a minimum of 30 minutes to just check that there's no smoke or, or nothing visible from anything heating up. We've seen smoke uh, scrap metal yards put in heat detection so that there's um, thermal scanning of the piles of scrap metal to ensure that when they leave, everything's cold. And we've also seen them put in um, water cannons to suppress dust and, and once again to um, keep the metals cold after they've been cut or, or worked on during the day. Often, um, those, those controls are only as good as the knowledge of what the risks are. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Phil Benj engineered this podcast. Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison produced it. Thanks to Karina Kirk and Pete Gallagher. Mā te wā.